So John 6, 22. So it's on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples and that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him uh, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to do be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And so they said to him, Then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you? For what work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. We'll stop there. So if you hear last week, it was a very, uh, or last two weeks especially, it's, this is the, the third part of a larger story, all right? So um, the story was that Jesus was tired and exhausted his disciples, and he goes to the other side of the lake and to kind of get away, but the crowds meet him there. And there's 5,000 men plus women and children. It's a huge crowd. And this is the story, you may recall it, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread and loaves. And immediately, the people recognize that this is the prophet that Moses promised would come. This is most likely the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to conquer Rome. And let's start this revolution like right now. We have 5,000 men. That's a pretty good army. And, And Jesus knows what's going on. He sends his disciples away. He dismisses the crowd. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And he, as he's praying up in the mountain, his disciples enter into a storm, which is what we talked about last week. And it was gnarly. And he waits anywhere from nine to 12 hours to go and rescue them. And he goes walking on the water. And he does this awesome thing, revealing himself in a deeper way to the point where the disciples at the end are worshiping him. And this is where our story picks up today. The people on the other side were like waiting for Jesus to come off the mountain. They must have left a boat for him there, and he never did. And so they're like, let's go find this guy, right? And so the people are hungry. They're looking for Jesus. They're hungry again. And that's something that this is overwhelming in this text, and we need to address right off the get-go, is that Jesus is using the idea of hunger physically to communicate a deeper soul hunger on a, on a spiritual level. And so he's talking to the people today, he's gonna, we're going to cover a lot, and he's talking to them in spiritual terms, like, you're hungry, you're hungry, and they're like, yeah, like, I want a sandwich. Like, and he's like, you got to like, feed on me, and they're like, that's weird because I don't know, man, like, I don't want to take a bite, right, of your arm. So this is what's going on, but like, he's trying to communicate that we humans have a hunger, a deep longing, 
If you think about what hunger is, it's a reminder that we're needing nourishment. It's a reminder that our body gives us that we need nutrients and we need energy and that we need fuel and we need these things. And, and on a spiritual level, that also is true. It may not give us hunger pains, but there's something that is driving us that's deep in, within us that is longing for something to satisfy and sometimes we don't realize that. And a lot of times we're trying to fill that hunger with things that we're going to see today don't satisfy. And so it's interesting. Jesus knows their motives right together. They're like, it's that awkward greeting. They're like, so hey, when, how long, when did you get here? Like, and he's like, listen, you're here because you want more food. It's not actually you even care about me. You want more food. But I love that Jesus doesn't just go like, get out of here. Right? Sometimes that's our mentality. Like, dude, I just fed you like, Six hours ago, we're good, right? Like, no, he, what he does is he gives us an opportunity to tell them about more food that he has to offer them. He gives us an opportunity to teach them. He, he wants them to be satisfied. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus. I love, you know, if you were to read this story and read the story of the Samaritan woman, there is a lot of similarities. He uses hunger a lot in this text. He uses thirst a lot in that text, but it's talking about the same idea. And so he's wanting to reveal himself to them. And so he says to them, listen, you guys have spent and labored a lot. Like you did this hike around a lake or you got through the boat to come and find me. You're laboring for a food that perishes. It doesn't last, obviously. You're back. It's tomorrow. Like it's the next day. Like this is how much time has passed. He says, work for a food that endures to eternal life. Right? He's, he's trying to draw them in to this idea. And they're like, well, what's the work? What work are you talking about? What work do we need to do? What's the work of God that we need to do to have eternal life? This is one of my favorite responses Jesus has. They say, what must we do to be doing the work of God? The reason why I love this question is I think that every one of us at one time or the other have asked this question. What does God expect from me? What do I need to be doing to be doing the work of God? What do I need to be doing? In this case, they're asking, what's the work of God for this eternal life that you're promising? What must I do? And Jesus' response is beautiful. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus is saying, the work that God is expecting of us to do is to trust in him whom he sent, which is Jesus, right? He's in trusting me. Here's the reality, and they don't know this yet, but we have the benefit of being 2,000 years later, is Jesus did the work of God perfectly, okay? The work that God demanded or required for human beings to accomplish so that they could have a relationship with God, so they could come into his presence without being destroyed by his holy perfection, human beings couldn't do. We kept failing over and over and over and over again, right? If we had time, we'd go through the story of God and he, he chooses, makes Adam and Eve and they're gonna image him and communicate something about himself to the rest of the world and they fail and so he chooses another man named Abraham, well, Abram at the time, and he says, I'm gonna make your people this new image-bearing group that's gonna communicate something about me to the whole world that's gonna be my chosen people. They fail, they get destroyed. Comes a new man, the new Adam, Jesus, on the scene, and he accomplishes the work of God. And so Jesus is ultimately saying, listen, 
the work is trusting me. It's trusting Jesus' work is what brings this life eternal that God is promising. And so Jesus did the work, and he summoned to trust him. And so then they say, well, well, then what signs? What signs will you do? I mean, I remember Jesus probably just did this, like, pause where he's just like, what? I'm going to tell you this. Signs make poor bread. Jesus said it's a wicked and perverse generation that seeks after a sign. I get we want to see signs, but it makes poor bread. It doesn't satisfy because what ends up happening is we long for the next sign rather than long for Jesus. The purpose of signs are to point us to Jesus. The purpose Jesus did that sign was so that they would seek him so they might know him, not that they would look for the next miracle feeding, which he does later, Luke tells us. Signs make poor bread. They never satisfy And it's so true here because literally he fed 5,000 people yesterday. And they're like, well, what are you going to do to show us, right? What's even crazier is that this group of people that are surrounding Jesus recognized the miracle yesterday and were ready to make him king and start a revolution yesterday. And today they're like, well, prove it. But isn't that crazy how often we can forget so quickly a work that God has done? We get our minds so quickly off what he's doing. We, we get our eyes off him and on something else, and we literally like, we'll prove it. And it's like, I just proved it. I just did it, right? We're ready to start a revolution, and the next day we're like, I don't even know if you're the guy. Like, that, I love this story because, and Jesus is so patient with these people. It, we, he's so patient with us people, right? It's not like we're any better. And so, as he's kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. He goes, first off, because they're, they're basically saying, listen, Moses gave us bread, right? They, they weren't, they, they said it before, but that's what they were alluding to. So Jesus is like, first off, my father's the one that gave the bread, okay? It was God that did that, not Moses. And secondly, he's still giving the bread. And I know if you caught it when Jesus is talking at the end of uh, verse 33, and they're in the middle, he says, for the bread of God is he. Not a it, it's a he, right? So he's giving them a a little spoiler alert of what he's about to go down. He's like, listen, the bread is a person. The manna was a picture of what God was going to do. And if you think about bread, because it's an overwhelming theme in this time, what does it do? It nourishes, right? It it provides energy, and it, it provides substance. It satisfies, right? Like, he is talking about something deep like we, we've talked about. But he's like, I'm the bread. I'm the bread that satisfies. I'm the bread that nourishes. I'm the bread that makes strong. I'm the bread. It's a he. And manna was pointing us to that. Here's what's interesting. As I'm reminded of this, my wife has been listening to a podcast that's pretty gnarly about a church that we had a lot of relationships with that kind of came crashing down. And what so often is true is that humans, we love to follow people. That we, like, we attribute what God is doing to people. Like, I've heard, like, well, I just, you know, I go to this, this guy and I just don't get fed by him, right? It's like, no, God is the one that feeds. And he uses human beings. He uses us, right? But, like, heaven forbid we ever get to a point where you guys are following me or whoever's preaching up here. 
over following Jesus. I've said this before. You have no idea what I'm capable of. You give me enough power, enough time, I can destroy a lot of lives. And we've seen it. We see pastors come crashing down all the time. We see churches just destroy human lives. We see pastors just cruel and take advantage and sin and all of that because they were given a position of so much power that they started believing the lie. There's a fine line between feeding sheep and feeding on the sheep, and we're all capable of it. Heaven forbid we start following a man over Jesus himself, and that's what they're doing. They were attributing a work of God to a person. They're like, Moses gave us this bread. Moses did this. Moses did that. Not realizing that Moses was a failed revolutionist who murdered some guy and spent 40 years wandering in like being a shepherd in the desert. Like God restored this man and used him. He couldn't even talk straight to bring out his people. Like he uses foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He uses weak people to bring about his work so that he receives glory. And so Jesus is trying to bring them and remind them of this. So then Jesus says in verse 35, and Jesus said to them very explicitly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you, must, uh, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, who, believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them and said, Do not grumble among yourself, for no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I'll stop right there. Actually, I'll go through 51. Um, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it may not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, first off, this is the first time in the book of John where Jesus makes an I am statement, okay? He's gonna make seven I am statements. I am the door, I am the good shepherd, right? These statements are very, very intentional. And it's Jesus identifying who he is, right? Where the idea of revealing God. Now, the reason why it's important is, is for this. In Deuteronomy, or sorry, in Exodus chapter three, verse 13, I'm gonna read this through 15, I'm going to read this. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am, he said. Say to this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God gave us the name of how to identify himself. He's like, this is how I want to be known. I am that I am. And I love that. Not that I will be, not that I was, but that I am. And God, throughout the Old Testament, chose like, I am like your provider. I am your protection. I am your shield. Like, I am, like God in his name just screams, I'm here to, like, I am what you're looking for in how he identifies himself. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts making these subtle I am statements. Not like this one, but like, like on the water. And he says, Unless, like, don't believe that, like, because I said the wind stopped, but believe that I am. Like, that's why this wind is stopping, and that's why this storm is ceasing. Like, but here Jesus is very explicit. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is intentionally using the I am statement to identify himself with the same name that God the Father has chose to identify himself Showing that Jesus is the word that became flesh. He is, he is the God-man come to earth. And it's explicit throughout the whole Bible. And so he's using this I am statement. But what does he say? I am the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will not thirst. And whoever comes to me I will not cast out. It's so crazy. This, this text says this over and over again. I will not cast out. I will not cast out. I will not cast out. And I love that because how often do we, or especially people we come in contact with, believe that about God? And I've messed up too much. I wonder if God's going to cast me out. I, I, am, I got this. I, I'm not great. I'm not awesome. I wonder if I'm going to be cast out. I wonder if I'm going to be rejected. I, I should be rejected. I've done some messed up stuff. And it's almost like the bride came to the bride reminding, I love you, I love you, I love you, I will not cast out. Come to me, anybody that comes, anyone, anyone comes to me, I will not cast them out. And he shows us in the text that it's because God is drawing us, right? We see this work of God pursuing humans, drawing us to his son, drawing us to him, and he's saying, any, I'm going to draw you, and if anybody comes, I'm not going to cast you out. Like, open invitation. That is who God is. He is the pursuer. And he is the one that is bringing people in to himself, anybody that wants it. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread, and I've come down from heaven, right? Drawing a very explicit similarity to manna, which came down from heaven and fed everyone. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He says, and I have come to do God's will, which is going to build on what I just said. What is God's will? I love it. He goes, this is the will of God, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I think that John intentionally wrote it this way to remind us to what Jesus said in John chapter 3 when he met with Nicodemus at night, and he was talking about being born again and all this stuff, and then he makes this really obscure story to this serpent in the wilderness. Israelites, so, so 
as he's talking about manna, he's talking about bread, the reader, the listener is very much engaged in the journey out of Egypt, right? They're thinking about the wilderness. Every, he's in a synagogue right now, so every person there is so familiar with the story of the Exodus. Like, it is their heritage, and so they're thinking about the manna, and he says, you've got to look to the sun, and they remember the story, and the story is this. They were coming out of, uh, they were in the wilderness, and they started complaining. They started complaining about the bread. They started complaining to Moses about all of this stuff, about, I can't believe you brought us out here, and you've got this worthless bread. And then Jesus, the God sent serpents, and they start biting and killing people. And so Moses goes and intercedes for them, and, and God gives them this really weird commandment. He says, go make a snake of bronze and put it on a pole, and anyone that looks to that snake will live. And so he did. And anyone that looked at the snake didn't die from the snake bite. And anybody that didn't look at the snake died. And there was people, a lot of people that died that day. And I found it interesting because what he did is he says, take the very thing that's killing you, the serpent, and put it up on this, on this as bronze on this, this stake and this staff. So the thing that's killing you, but make it out of bronze. And bronze is always a medal of judgment. And anybody that looks at this snake will live. Fast forward to right now. They don't know this yet, but the very thing that's killing them is sin, and Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross, and the Bible says that he who know, knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The very thing that was killing them became that, and they looked to Jesus, looked at the snake, and they lived. Jesus is saying, anyone that comes and looks to the Son will live. That's God's will. That's what God wants. That is what God wants. He wants anyone to look to the Son so that anyone that looks to the Son and believes should have eternal life because that's what it is. We don't just look to Jesus like visually, right? This idea, I'm looking at you and I'm trusting you just as the people looked at that snake and trusted that the truth that God said, if you do this, you'll live. They're trusting God's word in that regard, right? That God promised that if I do this, I'm going to live. There's a trust involved. And so that is God's heart. That's what's going on. And so the Father really wants everyone to come to him. He's pursuing them. And just like in the wilderness, some people didn't look to the snake and died. So today, some people don't look to Jesus. Our job is just to try and lift him up so people can see him, right? And so... Jesus is basically saying to them, I would say, is they're saying, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. He's like, I'm your sign. I'm the sign. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. I am the word that became flesh. I am the serpent that is on the pole. I am the sign. I'm the bread that you're looking for. And he says to them, they're like, well, this can't be true. We know your dad and mom, right? Like, we know Joseph. We know Mary. What do you mean you came from heaven? What's interesting is they couldn't believe in Jesus because they thought they knew who he was. Their premise was wrong, therefore their conclusion was wrong. But Joseph wasn't his dad. He wasn't his father, right? And so Jesus says, nobody comes to me unless the father draws him. And then he quotes Isaiah, this idea of that they'd be taught by God. 
But then he says in something interesting, he's like, but he was like, this prophecy is saying that you'll be taught by God, but yet no one's ever going to see God. Nobody's ever seen him. Nobody's ever seen him face to face. Nobody except the one that's come from him, me. Right? And so they're kind of like, I imagine he's just quoting this. seems really out of place. But what he's saying is like, I am teaching you right now. I am fulfilling this prophecy right now. I am God teaching you right now. And I'm the one that's drawing you to myself, drawing you to the Father. And then he closes it off saying, whoever believes in me has eternal life. They weren't willing to accept and understand who Jesus was because he was different than what they were taught. They were believing in a different Messiah. They had been taught their whole lives how the Messiah was supposed to be and how he was supposed to function, how the Savior was going to be. And because Jesus didn't fit their description, they wouldn't accept him. And, he, and he also, they had this expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to do and how he was supposed to function. And Jesus didn't fulfill that either. And because Jesus didn't fit their expectation, they rejected him. We all have, to some degree or another, a description and an expectation of God. And sometimes what we've come to understand about God and how we've expected him to function is, is not actually how he functions. And just because our description and expectation of God doesn't align with what God's word says doesn't mean we should reject him. It just means that maybe us as humans in our fallible state don't understand God the way that we thought we did and that's okay because we, none of us will ever fully grasp the, the majesty and just unbelievableness of God. Like he is otherworldly. He's out of this world. Like he made the world. He made time. He made space. He made matter. He's far more vast and greater than we could ever imagine, and that is okay. Because if we could take him and describe him and put him into our, our idea and our little box, how great would he be? How great would he be? We are obsessed with making God in our image, but God made us in his image. He's changing us. He's wanting us to understand who he is. And so then Jesus gets into the fun part. Verse 52. So the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Great question. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so who, um, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. That's awkward, huh? Weird. Weird text. Let's just, we've got to just address it, okay? If, we were, if I came up here and said some crazy stuff like this, you guys... Hopefully, just fire me on the spot. They, he is saying stuff that is like, has, here's the thing. It is so cr- out, of the, out of the ordinary. I, I personally think Jesus has a really hilarious sense of humor. I'm sure he was saying this completely deadpan, and he knew it was getting them all riled up, and they were just like, this is crazy. And he's like, I know. Like, but this passage has been taken so badly so many times to the point where there was people back in the day who think that Christianity taught cannibalism. There's 
a large church organization that has literally said this is, he is being very literal and that when you take communion, it becomes a literal body and literal blood of Jesus, which I don't believe this is what he's talking about because right off the get-go, we're going to find out in the next section we look at that Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, what I, the words I said to you are spirit. Like, talking about spiritual things. Like, he's very, he doesn't tell the crowd as they're losing their minds, but he lets his disciples know. Here's the reality. He is talking about this idea of bread and man, and he's telling them, hey, listen, your fathers ate manna and died in the previous section. The bread you're looking for doesn't work. I'm the bread of life. You got to eat of me. And they're asking, well, how in the world can he give us his flesh to eat? What I think that is interesting is that John is writing this book, and, and, and he's bringing these ideas of intentionality throughout. And I think that when he says at the very end of verse 51, he says, and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh, the last time that word was used was in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And so the reader, as they're reading this, might be drawing this connection back to the word. In the beginning was the word in John chapter 1, 1, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The reader could have been connecting this. What, what I would say is Jesus is trying to express to them and what he's showing to them is that my humanness, my humanness is where we draw life. That God come in the flesh, the flesh part is where we draw life. Because here's where it's the truth of it, is that it, first off, Jesus' humanness reveals God to us, okay? The revelation of who God is is expressly given to us first and foremost in Jesus. So it reveals God to us. Jesus experienced and participated in humanity so now he can sympathize and intercede for us. And like I said before, his, in his humanness, he lived God's standard for us. And so, talking about flesh and blood, he's intentionally trying to be jarring with this. He's wanting to be them to go like, this is so gnarly. And he's like, what I'm calling to is also gnarly. This isn't like a light, fun revolution that you think is going to be like no big deal. Like, what I'm calling to is like to take part of what I'm doing, like is to almost be explicit like feeding on me. So in John chapter 6, 63, we're going to get to it in a little bit, but I'll read it. It says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there's some here that do not believe. <clears throat> we see that Jesus is speaking spiritually. So what is he saying here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Because I know it's crazy. First off, in the text itself, in verse 53, he's describing what it's like to feed on him. I would say it's the point of almost like who he is and what he's done as a human being. But he, first off, it says that it brings life. Verse 53 says, whoever feeds on me, essentially, has life. Whoever feeds my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And so there's this idea of bringing life and having eternal life. In verse 56, it says that he who feeds on me abides in me and I in him. So it brings oneness, brings unity with God. And then in 58, and also a little bit in 57, he talks about multiple times, he says, feeding on me, feeding on me, feeding on me. It gives this idea of nourishment, this repeated coming back to him. 
which is very much description of manna. Manna, they had to go out every single day and gather it and take it back and eat it. And if they kept it overnight, except for on the Sabbath, it would be destroyed. It'd be, it would rot. And so they had to constantly go back and get manna. And he's saying, there's this idea of feeding on me, coming back to me and getting more and more food that you might be satisfied. What's he saying? He's like, you've got to be satiated. You've got to be satisfied with me. Well, how? Okay? How? I think first off is we need to be nourished by what Jesus said. When Jesus was tempted, Satan said to him, hey, take these stones and turn them to bread. I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. And Jesus' response was, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, compared God's word to bread. And that just as bread gives satisfaction and nourishment and everything, so God's word brings nourishment and strength and vitality and health to our souls. And so, that's in Matthew chapter 4, 4, by the way, if you're, looking, if you're taking notes, but... He's saying that you gotta, there's an idea of being nourished as human beings. How we feed on Jesus, we're being nourished by what he said. We're being nourished by his word. But I would say the second way that we're nourished is we're being nourished by what Jesus did. And I think this one's key. We need them both. But if all we're doing is just only in God's word, that's great. You're going to grow. But often what happens if we're only being nourished in God's word, we're not being nourished on what God did, which is, which is crazy because his, his word of God is communicating what God's done. And I'm speaking from my own personal experience, so you may not experience this, but I grew up in a culture where the purpose of reading God's word was to figure out what I need to do. I was just like the people in the synagogue going, what do we need to do to do the works of God? And, like, and my pastor would have said at the time, go read your Bible. That tells you what to do. And so I'd be like, what do I need to do? I need to do this, I need to do this. There's a lot of stuff in here I need to do. What if I don't do it? Well, then you need to read more. The reason why you're not doing it is you don't read enough. You don't know enough. You need to read more. And like, at what point am I reading enough? You're never reading enough. I am not mocking reading God's word. This is how we draw life. You need to be nourished by God's word. But what I mean by being nourished by what Jesus has done is really alluding to what I already had talked about, the idea of his humanness. Jesus lived God's perfect standard for a human being so that we can have relationship with him. Jesus, also in his humanness, died the death that humans deserve for not living up to that standard that God set out. When I forget, when I fall, when I mess up in my human weakness, I need to trust Jesus' work on my behalf. Christianity in my opinion, from what, G, what I see through Scripture and what I see Jesus calling us to, what I see the disciples calling us to, is this constant coming back to this base of I need Jesus. I cannot do this. I fail. I struggle. I try. I need Jesus. He, when I come, like, well, how do I have value? I have value because God has given me value. How am I acceptable to God? Because Jesus is acceptable to God. He has done everything that I need <clears throat> to be acceptable to God. Jesus is my righteousness. And, and what I find is that when I'm not being nourished by Jesus' work on my behalf, I'm doing it on my own, and I'm coming to God going, look all this awesome stuff I did for you, and it's riddled with, like, bad motives and whatever else. Like, it's not, it's the best I can do is filthy rags, right? And we're going, like, we, I think sometimes we feel, at least I do, that God is more pleased when I do it on my own. Like, that God goes, oh, you did it on your own, great, I'm, I'm waiting. 
I'm way more proud of you now than you relying on my son. It sounds crazy when we say it out loud. But how often do we function that way? How I do. Where I'm going like, I did it finally, God, without your help. It sounds weird when we say it out loud, doesn't it? Jesus is most, God is most pleased when we are holding on to Christ. He is most pleased because he's, his, when, he talk, when Jesus came out of the water after being baptized, he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. When we're clinging to Christ, that is spoken over us. So, nourished by what Jesus has done is a constant remembering and coming to reminding that I am most, like, I'm accepted, fully loved, and fully accepted by the Father because of Jesus. And it's clinging to Jesus. Like, I can't do this, but Jesus, you have done this. Like, Father, I come to you because, not because I deserve it, not because I've done everything awesome. Like, you, like, I've done awesome things, but I'm coming because Jesus has made it possible. This isn't a sermon going like, you're terrible and bad and everything. No, God is using you and changing you and making you image bearers of him and you're changing your neighbor and changing your family. But at the end of the day, what makes us acceptable to God is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we come into that space and I promise you, it is nourishing to the soul deeply to know that it is not up to me. God's favor and acceptance on me is not up to me. Jesus has fulfilled it. Verse 60. And when many of the disciples heard it and said, this is hard saying, no kidding. Who can listen to it? Jesus said to him, knowing to himself that, that his disciples were grumbling about them, he says, do you take offense of this? Then what if I were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life and the flesh has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe it. For the Jews knew from the beginning who it was um, that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you are a devil? He was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve, and he was going to betray him. Let's race through this last part real quick. His disciples were grumbling because he didn't fill their expectations and he didn't fill the description that they thought, right? They were grumbling because he's saying hard things and he's not taking over Rome. That was what was going on. And so he tells them, he's like, listen, um, what I'm saying is spirit, and the spirit gives life. We counted this as a church. We believe the Holy Spirit's the only one that can change people. And then he says something interesting. I just need to touch on it. He says, it says, after this, many disciples, disciples, turned away and never, didn't, they quit following him. Christ community, we, we believe that discipleship begins before conversion. That you can be a disciple of Jesus and, and be wanting to know him and be on to follow him without even being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus yet. Like you're, you're wanting to, right? And we take this from this passage. This is one of the passages we take this from where we see there was a bunch of disciples and they quit following him. And so discipleship begins before you believe. Discipleship begins as God draws people. Discipleship depends on the spirit giving life and it involves 
really anyone that desires to be with or know Jesus, right? And so, anyway, so as we close out this, he says to him, are you guys going to leave too? And I love Peter's response. He's like, listen, I don't know a lot. Like, it, it wasn't that he said this, but he's like, we've come to know and believe that you're the Holy One of God. Like, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I love, I love Peter's response in that this is that they didn't understand. He didn't get it. He still doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand, and that is okay. But this is what he said. He goes, listen, I don't get it. I don't understand, but like, I know this. You have the words of eternal life, and I know that you're the Holy One of God. Like, at the end of the day, sometimes that's all we can latch on to. You may not have all the answers. You may not, may, none of it may make sense. But sometimes there's something about Jesus that he reveals himself, and we can trust that. Like, I don't know a lot of stuff, but I know that you have the words of eternal life. So with that, let's close in some music. While they're coming up, I just want to give an exhortation to us as we're kind of reflecting on this. I encourage you, be nourished and satisfied by Jesus. Let Jesus satisfy the hunger of, I must do more. Let him satisfy the, I must be more. Listen, Jesus has done it all. He declared it was finished. You are loved by God. You're adopted into his family. He's given you the title of beloved. His child. You're fully accepted because of what because Jesus is fully accepted. But I also want to encourage you to be satisfied with the hunger of I must pay. I must make up for what I did. I know that that's a hunger pain. But let me tell you this, Jesus has already paid for it. He has made up for it on the cross and he was punished on your behalf, on my behalf so that you and I can be forgiven and receive mercy and grace. Jesus, let him nourish your heart. Let him nourish your mind by his word. And lastly, let me encourage you, let Jesus satisfy the hunger pains of where do I fit and where do I matter. I say this because God's word is a story of God pursuing the world and redeeming it and saving it. It's a beautiful story, and you're a part of it. The story's still going on. And you fit into his story. You have a place in it. You have a part in it. And maybe you at work, and maybe you with your family, and maybe you, you in your neighborhood, but you're a part of the story of God redeeming this, the world. You're included in that. And it is a beautiful story to be a part of. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. And let us be nourished by you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.